At the conclusion of our last study, we saw that the Israelites who had returned from exile in Babylon and Persia had rebuilt the altar and they had laid the foundation for the temple that happened at the end of chapter three. But when we got to the end of Ezra chapter four, we found that opposition very soon came from the enemies and construction stopped. It stopped, in fact, for over 15 years. But when we get to chapter five, we find that the work is going to resume. Here's what verses one and two of Ezra five tell us. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So initially, when the work stopped, it was due to some powers outside of the Israelites' control. But after more than 15 years, the Israelites no longer had the luxury of blaming their lack of progress on something else. They had fallen into complacency, apathy. We understand how these things happen. You stop doing something, it's only a day or two, and that becomes a week. And then a week becomes two weeks, and then two weeks becomes a month, and a month becomes two months, and two months becomes six months, and six months becomes a year, and then a year becomes two years, and then that becomes five years, and then you're at 10, and then you're at 15. And in all of that, there was no energy to get back to work. So what did they need? They needed to hear the word of God just like God had done so many times in Israel's history, he sends them prophets. He sends a prophet named Haggai and a prophet named Zechariah. They prophesied, it says, in the name of the Lord. And it also tells us in verse two, they stayed there supporting them. God worked in the people primarily through the proclamation of his word. And just to see how big of a role this was for the prophets, I want you to jump over to chapter six because the work is going to finish. Chapters five and six, we'll get to that when we come back to our studies in Ezra. But look at Ezra six for a moment, verse 14. Ezra 6, 14 says, and the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So the prophets were not just fans cheering on the sidelines. They weren't cheerleaders. The prophets were a vital element in the work, even though or even if they never picked up a hammer or a sword to build and to defend. With our brief time this morning, instead of focusing on Ezra, I want us to turn our attention to one of the initial messages given by the prophets. We have them in our Bibles. 
And I think it'll be a good message for us as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table. Turn with me to Haggai chapter one. If you thought finding Ezra was hard, you will not, you, it'll be easier after you find Haggai. You won't feel so bad about it. Haggai's very short, it's only two chapters. Uh, the easiest way to find it is to find Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and work backwards. You'll find Malachi, you'll see Zechariah, which is uh, considerably longer than Haggai. Then you'll find Haggai, probably just a page or two in your Bible. <clears throat> Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Third to the last book in the Old Testament. Let me read the opening six verses of Haggai's prophecy. It says there, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, that is the same man as Jeshua, just spelled differently here. Here's the message, verse two. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. In a more general sense, Haggai's message to Israel and God's message for us today is this. God withholds his blessings whenever we withhold obedience. God withholds his blessings because we have withheld obedience. This first group of exiles, remember, they came out 537, 538 B.C., and they were 42,000 strong. They traveled 800 to 1,000 miles, three to five months of travel, and I'm sure they came with excitement, with anticipation, with energy, with expectation. They rebuilt the altar. They laid the foundation of the temple. And after that, most of the people were excited. Remember, there was that great shout of joy. This is, the work is moving forward. They were excited not just because a building was being built. They were excited because the return of the temple meant the return of the blessing of God. Their mindset was, we're going to build back better. We're going to make Jerusalem great again, however you want to say it. It was, as, it was a religious fervor. It was a political fervor. Israel is going to be restored. But it didn't take long, and evidently it didn't take much for that energy to fizzle out. They established themselves in their homes, and they got comfortable. 
the resistance and the obstacles to building were greater than their energy to build themselves. You have to understand that. No one, if you took a vote, no one would have said, I don't want to rebuild the temple. Everybody was for rebuilding the temple. They just didn't want to do the work themselves. To them, the obstacles and the barriers to rebuilding themselves were greater than their energy to do it. And so for over 15 years, the work stopped. Look one more time at verse two. These are Haggai's opening words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. We're not against it. We're all for it. It just isn't the right time. That's what they say. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's what's going on politically. But this, this is not a good time to rebuild. It's not a good time to invest energy and effort. One day, perhaps, the time will be right but not today, not today. The time has not yet come. How does God respond to that mentality? Look at verse four. He answers with a question. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. God is saying to the people, let me get this straight. You can work on your own house. They're paneled. They've got cedar. They're adorned. Your houses look nice. You can work on your own house. You can adorn them with wood paneling and whatever else you want to do, but, but you can't work on my house. That, is that right? The time to work on the house of the Lord has not yet come, but the time to work on your own house, that has come, right? God is pointing out the ridiculousness of their position. And to draw the point even clearer, he tells them in verse five and six, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. How's that going for you? Where's all the blessing you guys were expecting? Is this really working out? for the best. Again, the message is simple, although it comes strongly. God has withheld his blessing because his people have withheld obedience. They've cared more about their homes and about their lives than about doing what God has called them to do. It's a stinging rebuke, and it's an appropriate cause for examination, especially as we come to the Lord's table. Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourselves. 
He said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says it in 1 Corinthians 11. When you come to the table, examine yourself. We examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, but we also examine ourselves to know how do we, how do we grow. Take a look at your life. Try to be honest. Uh, even after the, the service, you can ask someone else, how much investment, how much time, how much energy is going into the things God has called you to do and how does that energy compare to the rest of the stuff? Because that's what God says. You, you can't build my house, but you have time to do these things. The question isn't even asking about sinful things. As far as I can tell, there was nothing sinful or wrong about the Israelites building up their own homes. The problem was that that effort came at the expense of the greater and clearer call of God, which was to rebuild the temple. Well, what are those things that God has clearly called us to do? One of the helpful ways to answer that question is to be reminded about our church's membership covenant. There's no special power, there's no special authority in that document, but we have it because we believe it is a faithful representation of biblical truth and, and a faithful description of what it means to honor Christ. The, the first page of the membership covenant is, is, a, is, is doctrinal, creedal. This is what I believe. The second page, though, is application. If I serve Christ, these seven areas matter to me. And we have them listed in the covenant. They are corporate worship, personal holiness, stewardship, evangelism, prayer, mutual care, and church unity. Those of you who are members, you, you have signed on to those things. Those of you who are members have said, I, I understand that I cannot legitimately claim to follow Christ if I don't care about gathering with his people, if I don't care about pursuing personal holiness, if I don't care about giving resources to the cause of Christ and speaking his truth to others and praying for that work to continue and caring for others in the church and working to protect unity. What are the ways you and I have been neglecting those weightier things because of secondary things, even if those secondary things are legitimate. If we were to ask the elders collectively, what does what an ideal church member look like? How do you think we'd answer that? We're not thinking, we wouldn't answer in terms of how much money someone makes, we wouldn't answer in terms of how much education they have or where they are on the corporate ladder. We're not gonna answer based on how fancy they look on Sunday mornings. I think our answers would be more along the lines of, oh, one, well, an ideal member comes to church regularly. An ideal member, he is connecting with other people Sundays and through the week. This is someone who is attending classes, they're going to the members meetings, they're going to the prayer meetings. During the week, they're seeking to honor God in body and soul. They love their spouse. They love their family sacrificially. They seek to represent Christ and be a light in their neighborhood. They pray for the church regularly. 
They look for and they step into ways to tell people about Jesus. They give time and energy and resources to help others in the church. They're working to be faithful in scripture reading and prayer. They're connecting with others. In our church, they're, they're, they're probably part of an FLG, connecting with others. They're probably serving in some way. And, and, and when they can't do that, there's some legitimate reason, but when they can't, the, the heart is to do that. All of us have different strengths. All of us have different capacities, and all of us have different schedules. We know that not everyone can do everything but all of us should be growing to, to work, should be working, sorry, to grow in these areas. And so we take God's question to them, is it, verse four, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And maybe we can think of other rhetorical questions to ask ourselves. Is it appropriate to skip out on church because the restaurant down the street has an amazing Sunday brunch? Is it acceptable when someone says, I don't have much time to read and pray, but they've binge watched three seasons the last two weeks? You know, I never can really remember. Is it appropriate for someone to say, I can never really remember the, the fruit of the spirit, but I know the Dodgers starting lineup those are hypothetical examples, I assume. Maybe a tad extreme. I hesitate to give more. I don't want it to seem like I'm trying to single anybody out. <clears throat> there is one person I can single out, that's me. I love my wife, I love my kids. I love spending time with them. I love having fun with them. I love watching them when they play sports or do other activities. I love reading silly books with them. But as a dad and as a husband, is it possible for me to prioritize my own family, even in, in wholesome ways, to the detriment of something that's better for them and better for the strength and the health of the church? Sure it is. That's a form of idolatry. Where it is is part of wisdom and evaluation, but definitely that's possible. That's what the Israelites were doing. They were prioritizing their own things over the specific things they needed to do. Even as a pastor, it's possible for me to be so focused on administration and even preaching and lose focus of Christ and the heart of a shepherd so is it possible for you to be so focused on your own family or your own home or your own job or your own whatever else and because of that give up the better things that build us up together as the people of God? Of course it is. And that's how we end up we continue in that pattern long enough, that's how we end up with the thoughts, well, I, I just can't go to church today. I'm I'm too busy. I'm too, I'm too tired, I worked hard all week, my life is, is so hectic, I just need to hit pause on church, I need to scale it back a little bit. That's how we can end up setting our alarms for Monday morning, but ignoring it on Sunday morning. That's how we end up making sure we do whatever the boss says we need to do, but we don't listen to the king of kings. 
We are excited when the game goes into overtime or extra innings, but we shoot out the moment service or FLG is over. You do that long enough, and what does that communicate? It communicates that I still get to decide what matters most in my life. I'm still in charge. The heart of God is not to be a slave driver like the Egyptians were to the Israelites. But it is for us to experience the fullness of life and to be used for his purposes. Christ is Lord. He said, whoever comes to me will take up his cross daily and then he can follow me. But he also said, my burden is easy. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's not a slave master. We're not doing these things to earn salvation. We're doing them out of gratitude and service to Christ. My heart as a pastor is not to guilt you into doing what I say. It is to help you and help myself faithfully examine my life so that we can draw near to God, near to each other, and be more effective in the purpose he's given us. We've surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ because by faith we know his way is best, even when it's not easy. We know that a greater investment means a greater blessing. That's what Hebrews says. He's a rewarder. God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And we know that those blessings aren't necessarily going to be physical blessings. I started doing God's things, and money is appearing in my bank account. Money is falling, you know, I'm finding money in all my pockets. It's not necessarily going to be physical blessings, fame, and fortune, but it will be the blessing of knowing God and connecting meaningfully to his people and being used for his glory. And so again, we hear... Haggai's message, consider your ways. Are you experiencing the love, joy, peace, and patience that God's word describes? Are you experiencing the zeal and the passion and the satisfaction that Christ came to give his people? And if not, why, why is that? And what might need to change? In Matthew 5, Jesus speaks of a sacrifice that God will not accept because things aren't right with a brother. In 1 Peter 3, 7, we find that God even withholds answering a man's prayers because he is not treating his wife with love and compassion and tenderness. The blessing is withheld because the obedience is withheld. In Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's the reminder, that's the encouragement as we examine ourselves in preparation for the Lord's table. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure if you're a Christian, you have to understand the first call of God in your life 
is to repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what God is calling you to do. Turn from your sin, recognize he died for sin, he rose again, he will come again and judge the world. And the greatest blessing you can have is eternal life. You can, you can know God now and that will continue forever. But if you reject, if you fail to obey the command of trusting in Christ, you forfeit that blessing and there is only eternal judgment. But the heart of Christ is, and the heart of God is arms open, come. Come to Jesus. Pray to him, ask him for mercy, ask him for a new heart and he will hear your prayer. And then come talk to someone about that and talk about how to move forward with that in, in baptism and join with the church. For those of us who already know Christ, we still have to think, we still have to consider our ways. Is there a step of obedience that I can take today for the glory of God and for the strength of the church? It might be something drastic, but it doesn't have to be. Maybe it's just a small step in the right direction. But big or small, you give yourself to Christ and we ask for his mercy to continue. Because we are just like the Israelites, all of us, me included. You start something, there's energy, there's zeal, there's excitement. And then you get distracted. This morning, I think the message is the same message that Haggai would have had for the people. It's time to get back to work. Not for gaining salvation. We know that. Christ has, is a once for all sacrifice. We're not gaining anything here in a salvific sense. But we are obeying our Lord. Can any one of us do this perfectly? No, no one can. There is none righteous, not even one. But Christ has been righteous on our behalf. He was perfect in our place and the same grace that has saved us and cleansed us is the grace that empowers us to keep taking steps in the right direction. And we move forward with confidence because Christ will keep us to the end. Part of Zephaniah's message to the people was not by might, not by power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. Just like Israel would go on to finish the temple, we know that Christ will finish the work that he began in us. Salvation has come to us by the spirit of God through his word and by the same spirit and through the same word we will be sanctified and we will be glorified forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly recognizing how far we fall from your purpose, your heart, your mission. We cheapen your grace so frequently. We shrink your purposes and make things about ourselves. 
We forget that we are part of a bigger picture of our local church and of a global church in every generation seeking to expand the name of Christ and deepen its roots in the word of God. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the opportunities to serve Christ and to advance in the work we've been given and give us eyes to see the things, even if wholesome, that have detracted us from those greater callings. Forgive us for shrinking our idea of the church and focusing just on a few. Forgive us for thinking we've done enough just by showing up on Sundays. Forgive us for approaching any of these things as a checklist but grow our love, warm our cold hearts, remind us afresh of the grace we've received in Christ, fill our hearts with love, and in that love, may we passionately, zealously perform the good works you've laid out for us. We ask for the glory of Christ, amen.